Sun himself did not return to China as a national leader in 1917. Instead, he was forced to rely on the support of a militarist leader in Guangdong province, Chen Jiongming, who was sympathetic to Sun's ultimate aim of reuniting China and allowed him a base in Canton. The other key source of support for Sun was international. Sun had tried in vain to gain Western and Japanese assistance, but in 1923, he was able to gain formal support from the world's newest and most radical state, Soviet Russia, later the USSR. The Soviets did not think that the fledgling CCP, which they advised from its foundation in 1921, had any realistic prospect of seizing power in the near future. Therefore, they ordered the party to ally itself with the much larger bourgeois party, the nationalists. At the same time, their alliance was attractive to Sun. The Soviets would provide political training, military assistance, and finance. From the Canton base, the nationalists and CCP trained together from 1923 in preparation for their mission to reunite China. Sun himself died of cancer in 1925. The succession battle in the party coincided with the sudden rise in anti-foreign feeling that came with the May 30th demonstrations and boycotts. Under Soviet advice, the nationalists and CCP prepared for their big push north in 1926, the Northern Expedition that was supposed to finally free China from splits and exploitation. In 1926 and 27, the Soviet-trained National Revolutionary Army made its way slowly north, fighting, bribing, or persuading its opponents into accepting nationalist control. The most powerful military figure turned out to be an officer from Zhejiang named Chiang Kai-shek, 1887-1975. Trained in Moscow, Chiang moved steadily forward and finally captured the great prize, Shanghai, in March 1927. However, there was a horrific surprise in store for his communist allies. Chiang's opportunity to observe the Soviet advisors close up had not impressed him. He was convinced, not without reason, that their intention was to take power in alliance with the nationalists and then thrust the latter out of the way to seize control, Bolshevik-style, on their own. Instead, Chiang struck first. Using local thugs and soldiers, Chiang organized a lightning strike that rounded up Communist Party activists and union leaders in Shanghai and killed thousands of them with immense brutality. Chiang's actions were part of a wider tapestry of violent conflict that rocked China throughout this period. In the South, where the CCP had the upper hand, there were massacres of nationalist supporters. The nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek was born in blood, yet it deserves a more objective assessment than it has had until recently. In many ways, as the next chapter suggests, the nationalists under Chiang and the communists, eventually led by Mao, had much in common. Both parties saw themselves as revolutionary, and both would swiftly conclude that the revolutions had come grinding to a halt. The slogan of the Nationalist Party, 
the revolution is not yet complete, could have been uttered with equal conviction by Mao. It was their similarity of intention, in part, that made their rivalry so deadly.